Good morning. If you don't know who I am, my name is Ruben Ampfling. I'm the student ministry director here at New Hope. Um, for those of you at home who are wondering why I'm wearing this long black robe that looks like a ghost who forgot to do laundry, um, the, the, this Sunday is Reformation Sunday. And oftentimes, uh, a long time ago, back uh, in the 1500s actually, where uh, we'll get to Martin Luther later during the sermon, but they would wear robes such as these because a lot of the people who attend church were professors, were people in school, and so they wore these on the regular. Uh, often the outfits we see on graduation day were robes and outfits they wore every day. Uh, so this is as a reminder, and it gives me excuse to get to dress up for Halloween on a church Sunday. Um, and so I love these robes. They were originally worn also so that you would be a part of the service, so that the minister would not be elevated, but rather is just one of the people. Um, and so that is another reason they wore these as they preached. So this morning we're going, continuing our love of going through Nehemiah, uh, talking about rebuilding uh, hope. And I'm not as fun with my title. This one's just confession, just one word. And if you've read through chapter 9, it's, it's a long passage, 38 verses. And it's not just the people of Israel sitting there and confessing all of their sins. It's also a history they talk about their forefathers and everything they went through. They talk about the hope of the future and where God is bringing them. And they talk about the present grace that God is giving them, their love. And so I'm going to read through chapter 9. I'm actually going to skip over part of it, uh, not just for the sake of y'all, but for the sake of uh, my tongue. I'm not great with all these great Hebrew names. I'm sorry, Dr. Van Pelt, if you are watching this. He was my Hebrew professor. Um, and so I'll read the majority of these. I'll, I'll let you know when I skip past uh, part, but for the most part, I'll be reading majority of Nehemiah 9. So read with me through God's Word. But before we uh, approach God's Word, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly and Holy Father, I pray you be in uh, my mouth, in my speaking, in my mind, in my thinking, in my heart, um, and in the way I approach God's Word, in your Word, Lord. Pray that now my will or anything I want to be said will be put out there, but rather your word, that your spirit would be working in uh, me and through the hearts of these people this morning, Lord, and through the hearts of those who are watching this uh, either this afternoon or maybe in a few years, Lord, on the internet. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God uh, who is with us, as we see in Nehemiah, in your precious and holy name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. In another quarter they made confession and they worshipped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood, bear with me. Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabani, Buni, Sherbiath, Bani, Shani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord of their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabani, Sherabai, Hodadai, Shabani, and Pethani said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heavens worship you. 
We're going to skip ahead a few verses um, all the way to verse 15. What we are skipping is a short history of what has gone on in Israel. Uh, We'll get to that in the sermon, though. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to, to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies, your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud, you led them the way they did not depart them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them on their way in which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms, and peoples are allotted to them from every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sinhong, king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you have told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them their hand and their kings and the people of the land, that they might go with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities, a rich land, took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the enemies who made them suffer. In the times of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. For after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. And yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn soldier, shoulder, and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets that they would not give you ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you do not make an end for them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, you have been righteous in all that has come up of you, dealt faithfully and acted wickedly. I'll move our... Sorry, I lost my spot. Our, Our kings, our princes... 
our priests and our fathers have kept your law, paid attention to your commandments and warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, in a large and rich land that were slaves in the day, in the land that you gave your fathers to enjoy the fruits, it's God's gift. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom have set before us our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Thus ends this portion of reading of God's holy and inspired word. That was a mouthful, right? That was a lot. There's a lot in there. See, when people confess, uh, this whole ser- sermon's about confession, but I want to define confession first. When I was a student, when I was a seminary student, all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, thinking I was going to take on the world, um, I thought confession uh, was kind of a simple one-way thing. I saw it in movies. It was where you stepped into a booth, and there was a gentleman on the other side, and you kind of just said everything that you did wrong, and you waited for someone to admit and say, hey, you're forgiven. That's in my brain for a long time about what confession was. It was simplistic in nature. It wasn't the full magnitude of what confession is. See, the beautiful thing about our God is he is not just there only uh, to sit above us as a ruler with a ruler and to hit us every time we mess up. Our confessions, our way we approach God, are to admit our history, confess God about who he is. When when we confess um, our sins, that is one way to confess, but you see in this book in Nehemiah 9 that the people also confessed about their history. They confessed that they were struggling, that they were worried, that they were looking for deliverance. They didn't just confess sin, but they confessed their whole heart. Every aspect of them they admitted to the Lord. God asked for us to be fully open with Him. Yes, God knows our hearts. He knows everything, right? He is God, but He wants to hear it from our voice. He loves to hear our voice. I don't know if you ever think about that. But our Father in heaven enjoys hearing prayers, confessions, speakings of his children. I don't know if how many of you are parents or maybe grandparents. I'm neither, but I do have a good number of students that I get to and hang out with. And it's so much fun to hear them laugh or enjoy themselves or uh, to encourage one another. It brings joy to my heart. And I can only imagine how much more joy it brings to our Father in heaven when he hears his people confessing, when, when they admit who their Father is and they say, what a beautiful God. They say, you know, he's a God of mercy, a God of love. That you are uh, the Lord of hosts. God of angel armies is a fun way to say Lord of hosts in my opinion. That, that God sits there and he loves to hear our words, us confessing to him. So today I want to look at three uh, active words, three words with L-Ys at the end. I want to look at the consistently about confession, humbly confessing, and mercifully confessing. Confession is not something we just do once and just kind of let it sit idle and then we never do it again. In ancient Israel, people would, every week, they would come up and and they would slay a a lamb or a pigeon or whatever they could afford to to pay for their sins. They would confess all their sins and they would lay it upon this animal and this animal would get killed in their place. But we know as as, uh, 
theologians, if you've ever thought of yourself as a theologian, but if you've read this book and you've understood it, or at least try to, that's where I'm at, I'm trying to, and you're a theologian, you're someone who studies theology, someone who studies God's Word, we know that Christ came and He was the ultimate sacrifice. That He's paid for our sins, not just the ones we are committing currently, not just the ones we did in the past, but the ones we will commit in the future. The ones all of His people, God's children, has committed. And He took that sacrifice. And so when we confess our sins, it shouldn't be seen as an ending point, as I messed up and now I'm, now I'm done. You know, I confessed, I'm good to go. But rather, confession should be seen as a starting point, as a launching pad, becoming better. That confession, admitting who God is, is a reminder not to just be reminded, be like, that's cool, and then you just live the rest of your week like it's nothing. But rather, it, it's, it's a point where we can spring us forward in becoming who God has called us to be. In seminary, they use a really fancy word called sanctification. I, I think uh, it's too fancy. I'm not a fancy person. My, my wife will tell you I'm not fancy at all. Um, but sanctification simplified is just becoming more like Christ. That's the work of the Spirit in us, removing this icky sin that's inside of us and us becoming more like who God is. And that it, it's, it's, a, it's a journey. That, that if we're truly running towards God and running towards our Father, if we're trying to be the people of God as Nehemiah's uh, people were confessing they wanted to be, then we have to move forward. That, that our confession, we must confess our sins, we confess who God is, and then we have to live like we believe it. Live and believe like we were forgiven of our sins. Live and believe like we know that we serve a God of mercy, a God of love, a God who is working in us. I'm going to use a word that I think uh, maybe tainted your minds. I want you to throw out any definitions you may have thought this word when I say it. But God wants us to progress. That Christianity is not something that, that sits idle. But rather we are called to become more like Christ, become more like God. That as we offer confession, one of the best ways to, to help us confess is to be kept accountable. When I was in college, I went to a Christian college up in Grand Rapids, Michigan called Kuiper College. It was fantastic. Uh, but we had an RA who connected us with one other guy, and they would be our accountability partner. Um, they not only were there for us when we talked about sins we dealt with, but they were also there to point out if we messed up. Which I don't know if you've ever had an accountability partner, but sometimes it strains the relationship. I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like getting called out when I mess up. I also don't like changing. But oftentimes when, when we're told to change, when, when we confess our sins, we can feel like change is wrong. That God wants us to be uh, the way we've always been. But God doesn't want that. God wants us to be better than we are. I tell the students this all the time, that nowadays we're told to be the best ourselves, but the best ourselves still fall short. We are called to be like Christ, our Savior. That this whole book... I found the, this is the biggest ESV Bible I own. This whole book um, is not about a self-help book, but rather about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And why is that? And that's because who we're supposed to go towards. That these book uh, that we just read in Nehemiah, chapter 9, these people of God were talking about God's promises. The entire time they were confessing their sin, they were worshiping God, they are reading the law, most likely... Deuteronomy or Leviticus, 
or Numbers, even one of the first five books of the Bible, most likely. And they were also looking forward to what was to come. You see, we have a benefit that the people in Nehemiah don't have. The people in Nehemiah were waiting on a Savior. They were sitting there, they're confessing their sins, knowing God forgave them. They're admitting, be like, we know you've forgiven us. You saw they talk about the cyclical cycle of where uh, the people would be saved and then they would fall away again. They'd get saved and they'd fall away again. I don't know about you, but that uh, was kind of convicting because it feels like a lot of times that's in my own life. Uh, But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Oftentimes when we're kept accountable, uh, it's much easier to keep someone accountable than be held accountable. So much so that Jesus does one of my favorite parables, one of my favorite little pictures he does in the entire Bible. That's why I have this giant stick up here. Because oftentimes, it's much easier to see sin in someone else's life. It's very hard to confess sin if we don't feel like we've sinned. Jesus talks about that before we remove the splinter from our neighbor's eye, we should remove the stick from our own eye. Be like walking around with this sticking out of your face. And you're like, that's fine. I'm not worried about that. But somebody way in the back, they got a tiny little splinter. That's what I focus on. The confessing sin... This is going to fall. The confessing sin is a way to chip away at that stick. Chip away at these things that may be holding us back from loving people the way Christ loved us. I just got married recently... And one of the passages, <laughs> one of the passages that they talk about during marriage is talking about how a husband should be to his wife, love his wife. But how? The way Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died. And not just died, he suffered. He was tortured. He didn't call out and call names of people as he was being beaten down. But he sat up there on a cross, bleeding to death. He said, Father, forgive them. And when we are confessional, when we are being honest with ourselves, confessing sins, and being honest with who we are, I find it easier to love and to forgive those around us who maybe I feel like uh, are sinning against me. That the more consistent we are with our confession or more consistent we are reminding ourselves about who god is it helps us with this second word it helps us be humble it helps us to humbly approach the throne of god it helps us humbly approach those who don't attend church that confession leads to a heart uh, like christ a humble heart when christ came he didn't come in on this giant white horse like they thought he would as a king and a conqueror how did he come on a donkey. He came as a, in a stable in a barn. I grew up on a farm. I know what a barn smells like, and it's not pretty. It's not something you think a king comes in. But our God, He didn't sin at all, and He was a humble beyond humble. Yet all too often I find myself being pr- prideful. Sorry, I'm choking myself up. That um, God calls us to be humble. That confession humbles us that what i skipped over was uh, a passage a part of the book of nehemiah where the people of israel talked about their forefathers those who had gone before them and how they had messed up a lot 
I don't know how often you've read through the book of the Bible. One of my favorite books is Judges. I went through it with the students a few months ago. And it has this fun phrase that's repeated a ton. It says, the judge died and the people did what was right in their own eyes. People did evil because it was right in their own eyes. That's a humbling thing to see that the people of God um, mess up, that I mess up, that, that confessing constantly allows us to be introspective and change, to progress, to move to where God is calling us to be. And that's where we arrive and why, partly why I'm wearing this robe today. See, there's a man over 500 years ago named Martin Luther. He was a lawyer originally, uh, and he was on this road. He kind of had a semi-Damascus experience. Uh, there's a movie, and they make it much more grandiose than I think it was. But he was scared. He didn't know if he was going to make it out alive. There's a storm. And he said, God, if I make it out alive, I promise to serve you the rest of my life, to give my life for you. That's what happened. God saved him, and he gave up everything. He gave up his place. He gave up his money, his status, and he became a monk. And at that time, there was one big church, the, the Catholic Church. Catholic is another world for universal or like the church as a whole. And he was a monk, and he would uh, read through the Bible, and as he read through, he became deeply convicted of his own sin. If you want to have fun, look up his prayers of Martin Luther. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it for teenagers, or for kids. His, sermon, or his prayers are more PG-13, or maybe even R, um, so much so I decided not to say any of them up on stage. <laughs> but Martin Luther, during his prayers, during his time of confession, he would do it for hours at a time. He would wake up in the morning and for probably mo- for multiple hours he would just confess sins. Even sins he didn't know he messed up on. And not just within that, he would not only confess his sins, he would yell at the devil, at the one who was making him sin. He would yell at his own sinful nature, at himself, at his sinful heart. He would call him names and all kinds of crazy things. But it was a way for Martin Luther to come to grips with how evil he was, how deeply Ah, wrong he was. How for so much of his life he lived like this. His back faced towards God and towards his people. So Martin Luther, as he was diving through God's word, he became deeply convicted. I can say nothing less than the Holy Spirit worked in and through this man in a glorious way, as most of us would not be sitting in a church called a Presbyterian church, believing in Reformed theology without this man and a host of others, men and women. Martin Luther's wife was pivotal in the Reformation. Side note, she also made great beer. It's really funny. Martin Luther would write letters about how much he misses his church, but he'd also write uh, paragraphs about how much he missed his wife's beer. Um, That was one of my favorite parts of seminary. I wrote a whole paper on it. Um, But Martin Luther, one day, he became fed up with it. The church as a whole was doing things that he did not think was in the Bible. I told my students this morning as we were going through the Westminster that oftentimes sin is not so blatantly against the Bible, but it adds to it. That we see something, we're like, God calls us not to do this, so we're going to add to it. One of the first times we see this is in Genesis chapter 3. That when, when the serpent asks Eve what she's not allowed to do, she's like, we can't eat of the tree or touch it. We see a few verses earlier that God only says not to eat of it. He says nothing about touch it. That she added to God's word. And in that she fell. So Martin Luther felt like the church as a whole was falling away. They were doing things that weren't right. 
So we nailed a 95 thesis to a wall. I wish you all, I wish I had a picture of it. Uh, one of the volunteers, I'm not going to call her out, but one of our volunteers came to uh, the Halloween party with the students as the 95 thesis, as the wall, as the door. Um, and so he nailed it to the door as for a discussion, just as a chat. He wanted the church to get better. He wanted the church to progress. He wanted the church to confess of their sins, to admit they had messed up, and to move forward, become like the church that God had called them to be. But what happened? They didn't like that very much, did they? Oftentimes when we're faced with, with the thing that, that we need to, to be forgiven of the most, we just bat an eye. We cover it up. We say, nah, that ain't an issue. We put a little bit more dirt on it. We lock it in a, a door and we just don't go to that part of the house. So what happened? Martin Luther was kicked out of his monastery. His life was threatened. In multiple assassins after him at times. And what did Martin Luther do? He did something crazy, something that had never been done on a large scale. Because in God's sovereignty, a few years before, someone had invented this cool machine called the printing press. And a few years later, Martin Luther took the Bible that for a long time was only allowed to be given to priests and people who could read Latin, and he put it in the people's language, but in German, so that everyone could enjoy this book. And it's not just a book, is it? It's everything we need for faith and life. That the people could read God's Word, they could see how to pray, like we pray in the Psalms to to others' church. They could see how people confess, like we just read in Nehemiah 9. They could see how God had been faithful, as Nehemiah talked about, that these people were reminding themselves as they were going through struggles and hard times that God was there the whole time. That God never abandoned them. I've had times in my life where, where I feel like I don't know what's happening. I don't know. It feels like God's so far off. I think I may have used this uh, illustration before, but there's a cool um, illustration of it. It's called like I think it's called footprints in the sand or something like that, where it talks about how you're walking and you had a vision and you look behind us and you see. Uh, he said, in my good times, I saw two pairs of footprints. But then I saw that where I had bad times, I only saw one pair of footprints. And I got sad, scared, and asked Christ, why? There's only one pair of footprints. Did you abandon me? God says, no. It's where I carried you. That confessing sins are a way in which for us to become better than who we are, it's a way for us to move forward, it's for us to be humble. And I want to add a third one, because I think it transitions well to my third point. I think there's a third verse missing in the footprints. I think there's a line for a good part of that. And that line is where he drug him, where he dragged him. Oftentimes, in the times where we have to do the most work on our hearts, like C.S. Lewis talks about the dragon ripping off its scales, it was a painful experience oftentimes to confess and become better than who we are to be who God has called us to be. That the Catholic Church changed, uh, they were asked to change hundreds of years of tradition. But they didn't want to. So instead they tried killing a man who was just trying to be faithful to God's word. And so the third point is being merciful. That confessing sins causes us to show mercy to those around us. Causes us to show mercy to the people of God. This whole book of Nehemiah, we've seen a man come and rebuild a city, build walls up to keep his people safe. 
And now we're, as we get into it, we'll see more of the, the, the culture and what's going on in the community. We'll see them rebuilding hope, as this series is aptly named. And what does that mean for us today? How are we looking at Nehemiah? Nehemiah is building the church. We're called to build a church. Are we called to build walls? No. Because what is the church? It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's the people of God. The church is not this building. The church is you, the people. You get to go out humbly proclaim the good news. Without Martin Luther, we probably wouldn't have. And then when we mess up, when we trip up, as they say, we can confess that we were wrong. And confessing we are wrong is not a sign of weakness. And even if it is, that's okay. Because who does God say, who does God want to come to Him? They say the strong and the courageous no. It says, come to me all who are meek and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. The confessing sins is an act of God putting out his good mercies upon us. That we can take a seat. I'm not going to sit down. But we can take a seat and rest in his love and in his mercy. We are a God who doesn't hold these things against us. This morning in Sunday school we talked about how God puts our sins as far as the east is to the west. We're like, how far is that? infinitely far this is when god sees us on that day on judgment day when we're walking up those steps and god's on the throne he's looking at us with a book in his hand for all the things we've done today tomorrow and in the future and he would get ready to read all of our sins everything we've done all these reasons we shouldn't be in heaven all these things we've confessed what does he do he looks at us and says, you've done well, my good and faithful servant. Not because of things we've done. Not because of uh, Reuben was so great at blowing up giant inflatable balls for people to run into each other at the NPR during the harvest party, circa 2021. But because that Christ died for us. That when we confess, we're admitting that we're not enough. That we don't have it together. That our God and our King is there for us. Don't be afraid to confess. Don't be afraid to progress and move forward to become better than who you were. When I was in seminary, I realized I had a lot of things that I needed to change. I realized that I had been confessing sins for a long time, but I had never actually truly confessed them because I had never attempted to move out of them. I had to move out of my own way, as it were. A professor called it solo bootstrap. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He said it was the sixth solo. Um, and I realized that, that I had thought I was better than everybody else. I was prideful because I knew lots of things that other people didn't necessarily know. And I was confronted uh, with a gentleman who didn't know much more than a few words, but he understood love. He understood God. And he understood what confession was. It was a man who had dealt with a lot of things, but ultimately fallen to his knees. And I realized I'd never confessed sins on my knees before. I encourage you to try it. It sounds odd. But it's a humbling state. 
the state where we realize who God is. I think it's really cool that in Nehemiah that they confess sins, it says, for a quarter of the day. Then how do they end, though? I'm not going to end on a sad note. Because the Bible doesn't end on a sad note, does it? No. The Bible ends on a glorious note, an exciting note. On the kind of note that would make a king like David dance through the streets nearly naked. Or naked, depending on your Hebrew translation. Playing tambourines and music. Because God had forgiven him. Because God loved him. Because he knew his Father in heaven was merciful on him. This merciful Father dealt humbly with him. Not in the way he should be dealt with. That although David... And a lot of other people in the Bible, and I know me and maybe, maybe you, oftentimes sin can feel cyclical. And we fall away, we have to pick ourselves back up. But uh, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I don't want to pick myself back up. God does it for me. He works on my heart, forces me to confess my sins. But not to stay in there, right? We're not called to sit in our own sin. It calls us to move forward. Get rid of this stick that's in my eye so that I can better see God's people, so I can better love God's people, so I can better love this community out here that we have a wonderful, beautiful community of Kent, Washington. You as the church get to go out. And if you mess up, know that you have a Father in Heaven who loves you, a Father in Heaven who forgives you, a Father in Heaven who wants to hear your confession as he heard the people of Nehemiah, the people in Nehemiah, the people of Israel. Our God is a wonderful, merciful, humble God who wants us to prayerfully and sorry, prayerfully and uh, consistently forgive us of our sins. So go to Him consistently, daily, weekly, and as often as you do it, God will forgive you, I promise. He tells us in His Word, and we can trust this baby 110%. But this thing doesn't change. But we should become more like Christ. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly, Most Holy Father, we come before you today as a people who are in sin. A people who mess up. But a people who know we are forgiven. A people who need to confess, not just our sins, but also confess who you are. That we confess right now for this great cloud of witnesses that you are a merciful, loving God. That you are a forgiving God. That you are a jealous God for us that you know when hairs fall from our head, you are a caring, loving God. Lord, I pray as we go out that you give each of us the ability to confess our sins and to move forward, become better than we were. In your precious and most holy name, amen.